Welcome to the latest episode of the Test Scotland podcast. I'm Henry Hepburn, news editor at Test Scotland. Alongside me, I've got senior reporter Emma Seath. Hello. And our guest today is John Swinney, Scotland's Education Secretary and Deputy First Minister. Previously, he was Finance Secretary for nine years, and from 2000 to 2004, he was leader of the SNP. Welcome. Thank you very much. Good to join you, Henry and Emma, for this podcast. And uh, we are recording this early in the new year. Do you have any New Year's resolutions? I've said that what I'm going to try and do is run three times a week. And normally I can make that, but sometimes, you know, the days end late, start early, and it can be a bit tricky. And I find that if I haven't run first thing in the morning, it doesn't happen because my day just goes... What time do you have to get up to run it first thing in the morning? If if, if I'm running in the morning, I do it at six o'clock. So that's me, and I'll run for maybe... 45, 50 minutes, and I'm going to try and do that three times a week, and I can normally manage it, but, you know, the tail end of the year with the election was just hopeless, although I was doing a lot of walking, so I kind of consoled myself that uh, as I went from door to door, maybe this was the replacement <laughs> for the running, I should have been at six o'clock in the morning, yeah. so if I can keep to that regime of... Um, of getting up at six o'clock in the morning and starting running before the day starts, because what I find is that the day just goes out of my hands about the back of seven o'clock in the morning, and it doesn't really come back into my hands until it's too late. To run. <laughs> but we saw that you've got a potential running partner now on Twitter. Well, I don't, I don't. Well, I'm not so sure about that. I, I decided my son Matthew decided. Um, that he would join me. And he's how old, sorry? He's nine, and he decided to, the, the day before, I had my knee actually, he decided he would join me at the Blair New Year's Day fun run, which I take part, I've taken part in for many years. And it's about uh, just short of four miles, about 3.8 miles. And it's a great way to start the day. It's a, there's a walk at half past 12, and there's a run at one o'clock, and lots, there's about 700 folk took part this year. So Matthew decided he would take part. And we, we, we went around the course together and um, he's done no uh, running training. He plays football, so he's running about after a ball all the time and he does lots and lots of that. And he's a very active wee boy uh, physically in all that he does. Um, so he'd done no dress rehearsals for the, 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 the run. And we made it around the course and about just over three miles he started saying to me, oh, you know, I'm not sure I can make it, it's... My legs are like concrete, my feet are awful sore and all the rest of it. And then we got to the finishing stretch and all of these considerations seemed to disappear as he found his reserve tank of energy, (laughs) zoomed past his father and we now have the photographic evidence of Matthew Swinney beating his father. So I'm not sure that, I'm not sure I'll be running with him often. Well, you'll know his tactics next time. Well, I know know what his game plan is, um, but it it was a joy to... Uh, have them out with me and uh, it was also really nice the number of folk who obviously there's loads and loads of runners and walkers around the course and the number of folk encouraging him by name because mm-hmm. you know, lots of folk you know him locally is involved in lots of things and lots of his school buddies were out and about so they all saw him so it was lovely it was a great way to start the, start the year so I'm going to try and maintain that disciplined regime mm-hmm. 
You were talking about, you know, sort of getting your exercise, you know, by, by going door to door, you know, sort of during the election, you know, sort of that that was, you know, sort of you thought that that was maybe making up for you, not maybe getting out for a run during that busy period. Can you just, you know, sort of tell us a little bit about what that was like? You know, how did you find it, you know, sort of having that election, you know, sort of run up in December, you know, what was that period like for you? It was, obviously life is, life is very hectic at all times. And just in the, the routine, general bits of life of you know being you know part of a family, um, my constituency work locally in Perthshire North, and then my ministerial work as education secretary and deputy first minister. So it's a, you know life is busy, and there's not enough lot of time to spare. And then you get an election put on top of that, in which you know my own local constituency we had retained that by 21 votes in 2017, so we had to work phenomenally hard in 2017 to hold on by 21 votes. So I knew at the outset this would be you know, a lot of work to, to make sure that we could hold on. Because you know, the, the, although at the end of the election we can see we had an absolutely outstanding result and we actually held the Perthshire North constituency, by 7,500, the SNP right. did really well across the country. You've got no guarantees about that at the start of the election campaign. So we worked incredibly hard in difficult conditions because the weather wasn't kind to us and it's dark. You know, normally elections I fight in the spring where you've got hours of dark, of daylight in, in the yeah. evening time. It's, it's dark before, you know, I came down the stairs uh, in the Scottish Parliament one night at four o'clock and it was absolutely pitch black outside and I'm thinking, oh, we're going, we're going door knocking tonight, you know, and it's literally pitch black at four o'clock. So th th that was a, uh, you know, these were some practical impediments, but we found a way around them. Um, we we bought in lots of head torches, uh, <laughs> lamps that we were able to head torches. Yes, seriously, head torches. I was, I was, I, uh, uh, the, the two great additions I had for my election campaigning. Well, one of them I had already, which was my head torch, because I use it for running. <laughs> but I also, um, one of my constituency activists procured a supply of very, very, very yellow beanie hats with <laughs> SNP emblazoned on the top of it so this was the solution to all of my um, uh, you know cold head challenges that exist <laughs> uh, so I wore that beanie hat throughout it with the head torch invariably and that got us round and what, can you just tell us what the reception was like you know sort of on the doorstep and how you've maybe seen that change over time given you know sort of that you've been doing this for a while now. Yeah well it's, it's interesting because the, the first thing is that people are very pleased to see you in their doorsteps. So for all people might complain about being fed up with politics and all the rest of it, they're actually very pleased to have someone come to their door to talk to them about it, as okay. opposed to stuff a leaflet through and not engage them. So they like to have someone to talk to. When I go to the doors of my constituency, people are generally pleased to see me. They might not be voting for me, but they want to have their give me their puppets <laughs> one and have their say and if I, if I present myself on their doorstep they're going to take the opportunity mm -hmm. and they're absolutely right to do mm -hmm. so. What was interesting about this election is that I had lots of people saying to me they were fed up with Brexit, they'd heard too much about Brexit, they were fed up with all the issues, they were fed up with talk about independence referendum, they were fed up with talking about, uh, hearing about politics and this was getting in the way of Christmas. 
and then the turnout in the constituency went up. Mm. So people couldn't have been that fed up with the whole process because they actually were well motivated to come out. The turnout was up and the SNP vote was up very significantly. And what do you attribute that to? Is that just because it was such a tight constituency? I, I think it's a number of things. Part of the fact that it was a tight constituency made people realise my vote actually does count because I might have been one of those folk who decided to vote at the last minute or not to vote in 2017 and there was a majority 21 so I think it did make the point to people your individual vote counts in any election. I think secondly people realised this was a really important election and they had to have their say and certainly for, for the SNP you know we got an increased number of seats, we got an increased vote in my own constituency, we got over 50% of the vote, um, we got a majority 7,500, we had a higher turnout of voters, so that gave me a lot of satisfaction about the level of political engagement there is on these questions. Um, and I think, finally, I, I think people realised that the election outcome could not really have been... Um, I'm not, I was going to say predicted, but more predetermined. There was, it felt there was a lot at stake, so people wanted to have their say, and they came out and they had it. I know, I was just interested in that response on the doorstep, though, and how you've seen it change over time, perhaps, just because we hear about, you know, sort of politicians, you know, sort of going down in the public estimation, and people like Joanna Cherry, you know, the um, SNP, uh, sorry, the SNP MP, you know, she. I think there was an incident last year where she had a death threat, and she was. You know, have you experienced any of that? Or, hey, you well, know, I've, had, I've had. Like, I think, I in think, recent times, I suppose. Yes, yeah. you know, like, have you see, seen it change? And what's been your. Have you had any experience of it? I would differentiate between um, social media comment and doorstep encounters. Mm. Social media content is pretty unpleasant for, I think, most public figures. Indeed, I think there's an awful lot of social media about anybody in public life is pretty unpleasant. Um, and, I'm, and I'm sure journalists get quite a bit of it as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I think in social media, people feel literally empowered to say things they would never dream of saying to somebody's face, which brings me to the doorstep conversations, where... Generally, I think people are pleased to see me on their doorsteps in my constituency. They want to, they might not be voting for me, but A, they think, well, wait a minute, what, how have you got the time to be on my doorstep? Well, if I take the view, if I'm not on your doorstep, I'm not doing my job properly because I have to understand what you're thinking and what you're feeling. And I won't find out any better than by talking to you. So people are generally pleased to see you. They will um, they'll want to engage about the issues and the things that are on their mind, um, they will, you know, all of them will be supporting you, and they'll some make that very clear, but they may also have been people that I've helped mm -hmm. on different issues, and I don't, I don't ask what somebody's politics are when they come to my surgery, they're there to get my help, and, and I may remember them from, well, I do remember them because I, I, I know my caseload very well. And I may have asked them about how you get on with whatever it is they came to see me about. So generally, I think the the doorstep encounters are 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 good uh, and valuable. I could 
count on the fingers of one hand in this most recent election campaign the number of times somebody opened the door saw me and said not interested mm-hmm. and I literally mean the fingers of one hand um, but I think that's about that is about you know I think people often think I've had more reactions from folks saying to me how have you got the time to be on my door <laughs> with all that you've got to deal with in life and I said well you know, that's what I'm here for I've got to listen to what you've got to say and uh, I think people appreciate that You've been doing this for a few years now. Um, I think you joined the SNP when you were about 15 I or did. so, That's so right. in the late mm-hmm. 70s. Looking back to your school days, was that was your experience at school something that took you in that direction? Was there an influential figure, a teacher or something that, that helped shape your political view of the world? I, I wouldn't say in shaping my party political view of the world, but certainly in shaping my interest mm-hmm. in the world, yes. Um, I had... You know, Can you I, just remind us where you went to school? I went, well, I went, to, I went to primary school at Carrick, now primary school in, in Edinburgh, um, and I then went to Forrester High School, which is, um, uh, I have a lovely plaque over my desk there, a picture of the school, 1960, it was established, in 2010 it was rebuilt, and I had the great joy of uh, re- uh, opening the new school in 2010. Um, and Forrester... Uh, I had a great education there. It was a it was a truly comprehensive school, um, and um, well, maybe not truly comprehensive. I suspect it didn't it didn't have uh, you know it didn't have a an affluent set in its catchment area, but it was a pretty broadly based um, comprehensive school. And I was I was interested. I'd always been interested in in history, and then as I went through my secondary school period. I really became immersed in the world of English history and modern studies. And I had a particular English teacher, a man called um, Mike Gilmore, um, who led us in our analysis in English through a, kind of a very current context, I would say. And that chimed with what I was doing within modern studies, where I had... Um, a great principal teacher, Alec Winton, um, who was a really fascinating, well-informed commentator on current affairs. Um, And that chimed with my uh, life in history, where uh, I had an absolutely magnificent, probably the teacher I would say was the the most influential over me, um, San Diego, um, who was just a a really... um, he was an eclectic man, I think is how I would describe him. And just a real, you know, you know fascinating character. Um, and he just walked us through history in a really inspiring fashion. So all of that gave me a great interest mm. in the world, our times, decision-making, politics. I think what eventually came together for me, what resulted in me joining the SNP, was that um, two things were uppermost in that period in the 70s that were catching my attention. The first was the debate about Scottish self-government. Mm. Uh, 1979 was the first referendum. It was ultimately, although numerically mm. successful, politically mm. unsuccessful. Uh, I watched that happening and saw this great rise in Scottish self-confidence during that period, the sense that 
oh, we can do things in Scotland. I was attracted by that message of positivity. But then I was also attracted by a message which was that I found it wholly unacceptable that we should have nuclear weapons mm. in our country. Mm. So I was very much interested in that argument. And that was one that we did talk a lot about in school in our modern studies. It was a current live issue. It was very much, it was a period where there was a lot of international instability. What worry about, well, what is the significance of having nuclear weapons? What should we be worried about? So those two factors, Scottish self-government and nuclear disarmament, really were the big factors in my head. And the SNP obviously has been a party of Scottish self-government and a party of nuclear disarmament. So in the aftermath of the referendum and the general election that followed it, which was disastrous for the SNP, I thought, well, look, if you care about this, you should do something about it. So I joined the SNP in May 19, late May 1979. And in your current role in education secretary, you visit a lot of schools, perhaps more more than anyone else in the country. So you get a, a good overview of what's going on out there. What do you think has changed in terms of how things are now and how they were back in your school days? I think um, the curriculum is less rigid, so there's more scope, I think, for the character of young people to develop which uh, I think is a big difference on schooling when I was there. I think secondly, um, pupil voice is heard much more, well, is heard. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> what do you remember of that from well, your own I, experience? I, I certainly, my recollection of primary school was it was a pretty, you know, you were there to be taught and to get on with it. Receive. <laughs> you were there to receive. I think it's the best way, it's a perfect way to sum it up, Emma. To be filled up. And um, my secondary education was slightly more open, but I, you know, I, 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 I do remember it being pretty much the school was led by a leadership and an establishment, and the pupils were there to comply with that, was pretty much the, the, the atmosphere. So I see an awful. So the product of that is that I see um, an awful lot more um, articulate and confident demonstration of pupil capacity within Scottish education today, as a consequence of that greater flexibility, but also that hearing of the pupil voice and the positive encouragement of hearing that pupil voice as to how that can shape so you think that that's agenda. important so that Crucial. young people are not afraid to express themselves or not afraid to have an opinion? Because the bit that, you know, of what happened to me... Because obviously you still had opinions and strong <laughs> ones, <Yeah, laughs> despite absolutely. the fact that and, you had that kind and, of education. And, and it was a bit, but, you know, we, we were able to come through the education system and... You know, express those opinions, but I don't think that was a general experience of the education system, and I think that's now a real asset. And if you go back to what were the factors that influenced the national debate on the curriculum 20 years ago, one of the issues was about a desire to ensure that our young people were able to come out of education much more um, confident and critical and able to contribute, and I think we're seeing the fruits of that. Em and I are both parents, and we've uh, 
but where we started this job, we weren't parents. I definitely think that uh, it's given us another perspective on education. As a parent yourself, uh, does that help your insight into what's going on at schools? Does it help you see things in a different way? Without a doubt, because I, you know, I, I, I have three children, a 25-year-old, a 23-year-old and a 9-year-old, so I've seen the education system at different stages. Um, I uh, am obviously seeing, it's, it's particularly um, relevant for me to see how primary education works. What just year now. is your son in? He's in primary five. So uh, I'm seeing intimately his journey through education and seeing the different stages that he is going through. I'm seeing the, the breadth of the curricular experience that he is, is having. Um, and, and seeing also, I suppose, at first hand, um, you know, the challenges that come with the education system that you know, I'm dealing with at a policy level, but also seeing it at a parental level um, through the system. What, what sort of response? I just wondered, you know, like, what sort of response do you get? Do you go along to parents' nights, or do you, do you think that that shock <laughs> would be too I, much? Or um, what's, what is the deal with I've that? Just, I've just or said, your son's not at a stage where he's banned you? No. Well, 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 well you would certainly have an opinion about that. I, I, I've, I've made the judgment that I, I, I don't go to his parents' night. So my wife goes to his parents' night. Because I think, I just think that might be just a bit too much for a, a teacher to to handle and to deal with. Although I go to lots of things in the school. So, okay. for example, I was, you know, last year term, the the uh, school um, the school mass took place, the end of term mass, and I was there. Two nights before that, I was at the school nativity show, um, in which every pupil played a part in it. It was a marvellously inclusive performance. It was absolutely joyful. And, of course, to enable me to get to that on a Wednesday evening, I need to have the very sympathetic parliamentary business managers letting me away just a little bit early to get there. At a school that tells you massively far in advance exactly what their plans are. Well, precisely. So (laughs) I'm I'm profoundly grateful to the school for advanced planning and uh, to the parliamentary business managers for being accommodating, and they, they try to be very accommodating of parents with uh, with young children who have these things, because that, that and, I, and of course that gives me a sense intimately in my own son's school about what he's contributing to and what he's part of. Yeah, I mean I guess and also, like what you have to, someone to think about that is in terms of my own children just now he did done the literacy and numeracy assessments in P4 then, did he? We had, uh, he, he, he came home and did said he, to me he, um, <laughs> he said, we did a great game today <laughs> at school so, And did you um, say, can I quote you? And I, said, I, I, I said, well, I, well I'm, now, I'm now quoting him ad, ad infinitum but, uh, but yeah, it, it, for him it was it was a it was an, an exciting thing to do, yeah. and not something that phased them at all. And what feedback are you hearing now about the? Because it, it wasn't really so much that age and stage that people were concerned about. I suppose it was in P one where people were kind of critical. What are you hearing now about how um, how is that going? How are people experiencing that this time round? Because is it already the case that the tests in P1 are shorter? Because that was going to be what was one of the key things, one of the that was going to change. Or is that change not due to come in until next year? That 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 change. There's some um, slimming down of the assessments already, but the larger part of it will be in August 2020 to enable that to happen. 
I think what I would say is that, well, the, the first thing to say is that in the first year of the P1 assessments, the participation rate was in excess of 90%. It possibly was up at about 94%. And I think generally we got very little feedback on the basis of the fact that 94% of the pupils took part. I think the overwhelming majority of experiences were of the type that I've recounted about my son, that it was a, an activity to do, it wasn't something that particularly caused any um, distress or difficulty. I think obviously what is crucial is that we've got to be constantly listening and learning to the experience of practitioners and families and pupils uh, about the P1 assessments and that's why we're making the changes that we're making to P1 assessments because we have listened to some of that feedback. Uh, so shortening the assessments, making sure that the assessments are truly age appropriate and that they're handled and delivered in the most in, in an appropriate fashion. It's crucial that we keep that constantly under review. Um, how so do you do that? You know, how do you you know sort of make sure that you know that the changes that the government put in place are actually working and that people think that the tests are fit for purpose? Well you get you get assessment, you get responses from pupils and practitioners at the end of the assessment. So we will look we'll look at that data um, to to see what it, it is suggesting. We've obviously also got the P1 Practitioner Forum who will give us updated feedback on the basis of the changes that we have made. But fundamentally what this helps to inform is a wider assessment of the progress that young people are making through our education system and I think that's a really crucial element of this because we, we introduced the, the standardised assessments because we, we didn't have a means of um, supporting the teaching profession in making a moderated judgement at different stages across the education system until young people essentially presented themselves to um, for senior phase exams. And that's far too late, far too late. So the, 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 the standardised assessments give us those will help to inform those judgments at P1, P4, P7 and S3 and that these are good staging points to enable us to intervene to support the educational journey of young people where it's appropriate to do so. Hasn't there been a change in emphasis since they were first conceived so that you can see how there, there might be a case for them informing individual teachers' judgments but in terms of giving us that big national picture um, that we were promised at the start? Are, are they going to really do that? Yes, because you get that in the... Um, you get that in the curriculum for excellence levels data that we published in December and what that showed was incremental improvement in uh, all areas of assessment and also generally uh, a narrowing of the attainment cap by small measures but International Council of Education Advisors say to me it's small incremental measures that you should be uh, looking to, to deliver. So we get that picture right across the board and are then able to uh, act to support learning and teaching where it may need to be supported to improve performance. 
but we don't really have that over time yet because it's the first year that those statistics have been considered to be you know, yeah. sort of, of the appropriate standard. That would be for the first time in December last year. So over time, I don't think that we do really know, do we? Well, we've got, we've got, um, we will now have four years of data, one year of which you're correct, Emma, is um, it does not carry the experimental statistics uh, classification. So we've still got four years worth of data which we can look at and I think what the Chief Statistician's decision in December helps with is to demonstrate that this data is robust data upon which we can rely and then for all years going forward, we will have that comparative yeah, data to judge Yeah, we do need to wait a few years before we get that. I always wondered why you didn't just keep SSS, SLSN going in tandem with the new... Or was well, it just got the results for too bad? Well, it's, no, it's, well, it, well it, it, my, my judgement was about the, the, the number of things I was asking teachers to do. And because we wanted to do the curriculum for excellence levels because it would give us that comprehensive picture that we could address. Um, if we asked schools to do SSLN as well, then it's adding to the workload of teachers. And as, as we frequently talk about in the conversations we have, um, I have a challenge on my hands to reduce um, and mitigate teacher workload, which is one of the considerations in my judgment on that issue. I was going to go into this later, but it's sort of related to what you've just asked about there, Emma. Um, there was a suggestion recently that uh, Scotland is... Scottish education is poorer in terms of data than it has been since the 1950s. What do you say to that? I think it's just, I think that view is total rubbish. And I, I choose my words very deliberately, total rubbish. We've got more information on the performance of pupils at different stages in their education on a comparative basis than with, than, well, I don't know when we last had data of that nature, which allows us, crucially, to look at where learning and teaching needs to be strengthened to support the achievements of individual pupils. And the, you know, the problem with SSLN, I know that lots of commentators um, uh, liked SSLN, but SSLN um, doesn't tell you where your problems are in the education system. It tells you an overall global position, but if it's deteriorating, which it did in 2015, it doesn't tell you where it's deteriorating and why. Whereas what the standardised assessments tell you is at a diagnostic level in individual pupils what our challenges are. So you've got a, you've got a really very clear empirical evidence about the challenges that individual young people face in their uh, learning and teaching. And it also tells you um, where around you know, in schools, around the country, we may need to strengthen practice mm. to support young people. And that's an invaluable resource to have. And for those who are listening who don't know, I don't think we mentioned it just there, the SSLM was the Scottish Survey of Literacy and Numeracy, which is a, finished, came to an end in 2017, I think was it was. Yeah. It came out every year, but it was all alternate literacy and numeracy each year. Um, in an international sense, uh, that reference to data and being allegedly data poor was also, I think, maybe coming at it from an international perspective, where we obviously still take part in PISA, the results have just come out recently, um, but we haven't for a while now taken part in other big international surveys like TIMS and uh, PEARLS, um, and we, had a, we actually published a piece recently by a chap involved in TIMS uh, who suggested that Scotland needs to be very well renowned for its, uh, its level of data and that our reputation in that sense was a bit tarnished now because we didn't take part in so many 
uh, so many international surveys and well I, th I think it's about it's about getting a balance of what is the, the relevant and valuable data you know we we continue to participate within PISA to get that international comparison and to give us an insight into how our system is performing of course in the recent um, uh, data it demonstrated a significant improvement in reading which was a early priority of the attainment challenge um, and it demonstrated stability in maths and science so we've got that comparative information. We've then also got a data set about the performance within our own curriculum here in Scotland through the Curriculum for Excellence Levels data, which to me is a much richer, more comprehensive, more useful data set than the survey information because it, the survey information doesn't enable you to identify where the improvements in your education system need to be made and I'm very focused on where we need to meet those. So we should probably say, so I'm just going to say, we probably should say that point. You've obviously got a glass half full interpretation of PISA. There was also a glass half empty interpretation from your political opponents, which would have been that uh, in science and maths, these were our worst ever. Um, well, my opponents, my opponents will always have a glass half empty view of the world uh, for occasions like this. But, you know, I just go on what the statisticians say. And the statisticians say, no OECD, who are the originators of PISA said that our performance in maths and science was stable but there was a significant improvement in reading performance so I, I, I will quote the statisticians. You were saying there that um, because we've got the SNSAs and we've got the um, CFE levels data now then you can see a bit more specifically which areas we might need to improve on. So can you just be telling maybe a little bit about how the government's using that information because certainly because it does actually drill down into you know sort of local authority level data as well and shows that some local authorities perform better than others. So the government has that information now. So what do you how do you use it? Well these are the, the, some of that analysis is why we uh, are encouraging collaboration within local authorities through the regional improvement collaboratives for example to provide the necessary support to enhance individual school and local authority performances. It's central to the work that Education Scotland undertake as well in making sure that we are actively supporting the enhancement of learning and teaching within the education system. So when we see that you know, that data is available to everyone, it's freely available information and from a local authority perspective, what we're encouraging local authorities to do is to work with Education Scotland and to work with partners in the Regional Improvement Collaboratives to enhance performance where it needs to be enhanced. Um, and that's a, 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 an active, ongoing process of improvement, which is an integral part of the National Improvement Framework that we put in place in 2015 which is all about having an education system that is constantly looking to how it can improve its performance. And that, in, in, in the, the reading that I've undertaken internationally on school improvement uh, and in the various discussions I've participated in with the International Council and at gatherings like the International Summit of the Teaching Profession, what's been clear to me is that you have to create conditions which encourage um, perpetual improvement within the education system. So that's where the, national, the thinking behind the National Improvement Framework comes from 
and that's where our thinking to encourage local authorities to work collaboratively with others uh, to support schools and improve the performance comes from into the bargain. You've been in the job four years now, uh, nearly four years, I think it's four years in May. Um, what would you say is your biggest success in that time? I think there's, there's, there's two things that I'm very um, pleased about particularly. One is that the education system has, I think, pretty comprehensively absorbed, followed, thought about and applied our strategic objectives of delivering excellence and equity through closing the poverty-related attainment gap. So I see that where I go around the country, I see schools actively engaged in that challenge. Um, I don't go to a school where I don't see it actually, mm -hmm. uh, and um, inspection evidence supports that as well. I think local authorities have bought into that agenda, so we've got a really clear unified agenda about closing the attainment gap through the pursuit of excellence and equity, that's the first thing. And the second point is that we've been able to make decisive progress on the empowerment agenda. Um, I believe that our curricular decisions will only be successfully implemented if we have um, an empowered teaching profession. Uh, curriculum for Excellence will never achieve its full purpose um, if we do not have an empowered profession. And I, I think the steps that we are now taking to empower the profession, uh, to put as much influence and decision-making right into the classroom to individual teachers is now beginning to prevail. Um, it's, a, it's a cultural question. It's you know, Obviously, as you know, um, it was something I began thinking of um, creating by legislation. Mm -hmm. um, I was persuaded by the advice of the International Council mm -hmm. that we would have more success mm -hmm. in truly delivering empowerment if we changed culture mm -hmm. rather than legislation. And I opted to take forward the change of culture route and we've engaged with local government to enable that to happen and I'm beginning to see the signs of that uh, as Her Majesty is inspecting it, uh, it also uh, indicates is the case within the education system. So, so that combination of the focus of the education system on closing the attainment gap through pursuit of excellence and equity and the uh, the, the, the impact of the empowerment agenda is where I think um, most progress has been made. They, just when you're talking about empowering teachers, and that was something that was one of the key messages, I think, when you were speaking at the Scottish Learning Festival in September. And so immediately after that, I went and spoke to Pazzy Selberg, who, of course, is one of the international education advisors. And we were talking about um, the OECD figures that show that teachers in Scotland spend more time in front of classes than anywhere else in the OECD. Um, have you got any plans to do anything about that? Because it would seem that you're not going to get an empowered profession whilst people don't have the chance to stop and think. Yeah, I think the, I think the, the, key, the key challenge here is about how people are using their time. Now, I, I, I can't deny the figures that demonstrate class contact time is high, comparatively speaking, in Scotland and other countries. But it's then about what are professionals able to do with the remainder of their time, which is not class contact time. Now, I accept that some of that has been eroded because of shortages of teachers over the years. We've, you know, we've now largely remedied that issue uh, with the improvement in teacher numbers. Um, with stability in the class uh, pupil teacher ratio, 
and by the significant reduction in vacancies around the country. Um, it's also affected by people feeling trapped by some of the bureaucratic requirements of the system, which I would encourage them to think in, as an empowered professional, does this particular bureaucratic task actually contribute to the learning and teaching of young people? And you know, one of the comments I made at the Scottish Learning Festival was to quote, uh, you know, recount a quote which had been given to me by a teacher who'd said to me, well, my, the thing that the judgment I apply is that if it's not got anything to do to enhancing the learning and teaching of young people, I don't do it. Now, I accept that that's very easy for John Swain to see on the platform at the Scottish Learning Festival, might be slightly more challenging for a, teach, a classroom teacher who's being asked for some piece of data. Yeah, by I think it probably is. I mean, Larry Flanagan, you know, sort of, I think that your other one that you say quite a lot is proceeding until apprehended. Yeah. And Larry Flanagan, the EIS General Secretary, would say that in Scottish education you're apprehended pretty quickly. <laughs> well, well but, but you see, this, this is where I think some of the collaborative work that we're taking forward across the system is beginning to bear fruit because the message that I'm setting out on that question is a message echoed by our local authority partners and it's also echoed by the professional associations and you know, I've made a particular effort to get the professional associations as partners in this because I, I appreciate that a, a member of the teaching profession might think oh, well that's all very well to hear him saying that from the platform of the Learning Festival they might feel it a bit more comfortably if they're hearing it in a staff room, staff room talked about by their fellow professionals and with professional association support. So we actually get teachers into the space of using the time available to, as you say, Emma, stop and think, as opposed to maybe spending time on bureaucratic tasks that really add no value to the educational journey of young people. Now, I appreciate that's quite a difficult judgment to make um, in the process, but it's one that I think um, will assist in addressing the, the, the issue that you raise. Just a few minutes ago, I asked you about your biggest success in your nearly four years in the job. The converse of that is, is there anything you would do differently now with the benefit of hindsight? I think the, the thing that I probably am guilty of is trying to do things in too much of a hurry. I want to get on with things. And I suppose one of the lessons I'm learning about education and education policy is that it's, it moves slightly slower. You know, the world of finance that I was accustomed to as finance minister was largely one in which I would say to people, look, I'll give you this money mm -hmm. if you will do this. And I will not give you this money if you will not do this. Mm -hmm. In education, it's not quite as strict. Things got the pencils, makes it still the same. <laughs> but it's about trying to make sure that there's a lot of time has to be spent in creating agreement around the direction to take. And that's probably taken longer than I would have liked. So, you, so you've said you like things to happen in a hurry. Is there something where you've, you think you've gone ahead with something too quickly? You've not given it enough consideration um, before you've ploughed on? No, I think it's, I think it's a case of, 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 of me perhaps not appreciating that things will take longer than I ideally would like them to take. Is there an example of that? Or? <laughs> well, it's, uh, I'll, I'll leave you to speculate on that. <laughs> we thought we could rattle through a few of the sort of big issues in Scottish education um, 
of late or current issues, one of which is uh, workload. The, obviously, there was the pay issue was by and large resolved last year, but the, pretty much straight away the union said, right, the next big thing is workload. That's what, what, so what's... What are you going to do to make a significant difference to teacher workload? Well, we put we put a significant set of measures into mm. the, the, you know, the, the the deal we arrived at with the press associations was not just a pay deal; it was mm-hmm. a pay and workload mm-hmm. deal. Mm-hmm. Um, because what I put into that was um, two extra service days to enable the, the teaching profession to address some of these workload issues. And then also the commitment, which I just talked about, about how we work with the professional associations to tackle the uh, the, 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 workload, the workload questions. So we've we've done um, you know, we've we've taken those steps, and we'll continue. That's an, a, a, an agenda that and a journey that we are on um, to advance uh, uh, those 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 questions. And I'm confident that we have a period available to us that will enable us to make real progress and therefore enable teachers to um, to be able to tackle the work. Now, obviously, there's, there's specific things that we've we've done, such as the removal of unit assessments in the senior phase uh, to reduce um, the workload burdens on pupils and staff, but uh, there are a range of other measures that uh, we will be taking forward with the associations. Is there any realistic prospect that class contact time might be something that you would look at? Because I mean, obviously, you've got the figures that show that we have, you know, that that, that that's you know sort of an issue in Scotland. But is that anything that there's not there's not a, there's not a quick fix to this because the quick fix to this um, would in, in, inevitably lead to quite a reshaping of Scottish education and. Um, we have to think that through and consider it. And obviously I'm, I'm open to discussion about these questions, but fundamentally what I'm trying to do is to liberate the teaching profession of unnecessary bureaucratic activity so that they can concentrate on enhancing learning and teaching. And I've taken practical steps during this year through the additional in-service days to enable teachers to, to do exactly that. Perennial problem, isn't it? I mean, do you have? Do you think that you're going to solve it? Well, I think I think I, I, well, I, I, I think teachers have the. You know, we're we're putting in place the ingredients that enable teachers to confront this issue, and uh, I think we're we're seeing the fruits of that uh, at an early stage. And as we go through this uh, this school year, I'm sure we'll see more of that. You talk about radical reform. There's a, a suggestion the other day reported that. The Scotland should indeed uh, consider something very radical insofar as copying the reforms in England in English education in recent years. What do you well, we'll, think we'll, of that? Well, we'll not be doing that. <laughs> um, I, um, I, I fundamentally believe in the comprehensive principle, and I also believe in a sentiment which was recounted to me at the by my counterparts in Finland when I was there in the spring of this year, the International Summit of the Teaching Profession, where they um, very much took forward the view that the local school must be the good school. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, I want every young person in Scotland to be able to go into the local school and get an excellent education. That's what I want. And that's the, that's the system we're working to ensure applies across the board. There's a perspective, uh, I think, from there's more of a, a, an ideological battle going on in 
English education between a more traditional approach in inverted commas and a more progressive approach in inverted commas. Um, in Scotland, people tend to sing more from the same hymn sheet, but is there also a danger in Scotland that there's a bit of an echo chamber that we just confirm each other's biases about education? Well, I think we've got to be open to challenge, and that's why we commissioned the OECD to look at um, the broad general education, um, for the report um, which came out in CFE in 2015. Um, it's what we'll be looking to achieve from the senior phase review, so that we, we you know, we hold a mirror up to ourselves. Uh, there's, a, there's no obligation to follow somebody else's education system, and um, I think there's, you know, we should be prepared to look at evidence. We should be prepared to reflect on evidence and come to our own conclusions, and that's what we did in the national debate in Scotland, and it's why we should come back to revisit some of these questions in the. Um, in the, the you know, examples such as the OECD review on CFE that uh, that took place in 2015, and there has been some very strong criticism of Scottish education from south of south of the border, from uh, politically, from some academics, um, and they very much see the narrative of Scottish education as one of failure over recent times. What's your response to that? Well, I, I, well, I, I, I reject it because fundamentally, I think if you look at the the outcomes in Scottish education, the outcomes in Scottish education are generally very strong. Mm -hmm. Young people are leaving school to go on to um, the highest level of positive destinations on record. Um, we, uh, so that's in, in one measure about what's the sum total of the educational experience of young people, well it is equipping them to go on to much better outcomes than has been the case in the past. Another measure is in relation to um, attainment, where we see, uh, I think, two things generally. One is very high performance um, at higher pass rates, um, and although there was a, a dip in 2019, uh, it still represented 75% uh, of 75% um, pass rate. Um, in the hires, which is very strong indeed. Um, and the second thing that has been demonstrated in attainment is that more young people from more deprived backgrounds are going on to achieve more qualifications at a higher level than has been the case in the past. So uh, I think of that measure, that th these are good, strong outcomes that are being achieved. And then when I look at the... CFE levels data, which looks at over a much longer time period within Scottish education, or over a number of years, I should say, different stages in Scottish education, um, generally very high levels of achievement of levels by young people within Scotland. You know, they're not 100%, but they are very high levels of performance um, in the high 80s, the low 90s, um, which I think give us indication of the, the, the strength of the system. Now, we've can I, just, can I just ask you just about the positive destination stats because that's something that we looked at and it was maybe a couple of years ago now but you know, I think it still applies because they're usually in 90% and above you know, sort of in terms of um, kids going on to a positive destination and around about 20% of those um, go into employment but all they have to do when they get the call or they give their feedback 
is say that they have a job and there's no scrutiny around what kind of job that is. So it could be, you know, sort of, it could be a zero hours contract, you know, it could be that one academic said to me that it could be that, you know, they, they weren't in a job that would allow them to live independently and have a good life. Do we need a bit more rigour around what we think of as being a positive destination in terms of um, that employment category. Like now there's our further education and higher education, mm. but in terms of that employment category, the 20% roughly are in. Do we need to, you know, sort of get, get more rigorous about that? Well, you know, these are, these are um, uh, statistics that are uh, produced on a um, on a consistent basis uh, over time, and I'm certainly happy to explore uh, whether there's more um, detail that can be put into them. But I think they are a good indicator of what young people have been equipped for as a consequence of their school education, and to um, and to identify what impact schooling has, has made on those young people. Um, but there's always room to uh, to explore whether there's more. Um, detail we could explore within some of the, the data sets that we collect. I mean, because it was a couple of years ago that we did those pieces and we even had people like the secondary head teachers, Jim Thulis of School Leaders Scotland, the Secondary Head Teachers Association, you know, sort of saying that um, the definition of a positive destination was very, very woolly. I mean, so it's, it's an issue that's been, you know, sort of around for quite a long time and nothing seems to have happened to change it and personally every time I see those figures of 90% plus in a positive destination I just think that there's a huge question mark over whether or not we can really say that that's positive. One academic said to me it should be called not negative destination stats. Well we're looking to we're looking to see how young people been able to progress from school into um, the world of work or further education or training to determine are they on a pathway that will be successful with other opportunities obviously available to them even if they're in work to enter uh, further education and higher education as a consequence of working experiences that they uh, attract but I think they give us a very strong indication of the um, of what schools have equipped young people for um, as part of that educational process. But, you know, as I, say, as I say, I'm very happy to look at um, the composition of these data sets if there's a way in which they can be strengthened. The big talking point this year, sorry, not this year, we're now in 2020, but in last year, in 2019, uh, in Scottish education, certainly if you're paying attention to the Education Committee at Parliament and education debates in the Chamber, was uh, subject choices and... Uh, some people would say that when Critic for Excellence was envisaged nearly 20 years ago now, that if you'd said to people then that, you know, when kids are getting up to the latter part of secondary school and they might only have six subjects they can choose, that's not really what people had in mind way back then. What's your response to that, that uh, options are certainly in some parts of the country perhaps narrower than they were going back a few years ago? I don't, I don't think options are narrower than they were 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that for a minute. Um, I think the debate's got to take into account two things. One is that the broad general education, um, and we must be satisfied about this point, uh, the broad general education um, is an entitlement up to the end of S3 which should give young people that truly rounded breadth of educational experience. And again, 
um, the OECD explored this and generally found that to be the case. Inspection evidence looks at that into the bargain, and so it should. Um, and we have to be, you know, we have to be constantly attentive to whether that's the case or not. And the second thing that we have to be mindful of is the fact that um, the options that are available to young people um, may be different to the options that were available for the time that many of us went through the school education system. And um, that, I think, is a tribute to educators listening to something else I talked about earlier on, which was pupil voice, and what is actually motivating pupils to ensure that they have a fulfilled educational experience. So there's been tremendous design and development of course options for young people. It might not look the same as it looked in the rather rigid column choices that were available to me in my education system, but in my view, it provides a breadth of experience uh, for young people that is appropriate. Now, obviously, we've, we've said that we'll explore some of these questions in further detail through the senior phase review to make sure that those sentiments that I've just expressed to you are actually being fulfilled within the curricular choices that have been made around the country. But I don't think anyone could sustain an argument that says that somehow um, options have narrowed. Um, uh, the, 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 there is a broadening of opportunities and options and um, I think schools go to great lengths to make sure that those are available to, to young people around the country. I think it's maybe not so much the... I think there's, it's almost like there's this... I don't know if it's like a willful misunderstanding or not, but I think nobody would dispute that there maybe are more choices. It's just the opportunity to take those choices. But, I I, but then I don't... But if, you, but if you're looking at the senior phase as a three-year phase, I don't think there's any loss of opportunity to do that because young people are able on curricular models around the country to assemble a portfolio of qualifications arising out of experiences and courses that they've chosen over a three-year period. If you take one year, S4, which is what the Education Committee has looked at, then you know I, I can understand where they're coming from, but that misunderstands, that totally misunderstands the purpose of the senior phase which was to be a three-year experience. So if you if you look at one component of something which was designed to be a three-year experience, then I'm not surprised you can come to some of the conclusions. But, you know, the Education Skills Committee report on this question you know, was contradictory. On the one hand, it said there were more choices, and then on the other hand said there was restriction of choices. So, uh, you know... Yeah, but I think that that's the issue, isn't it? That is, there are options, but, but, but it's just but that, that there's, not as many there's not as much chance within your timetable to take those options. But that arises out of looking at one year out of a three-year senior phase. Do you think that there are many schools that are running it as a three-year senior phase? Yes. Right. <laughs> is, uh, maybe just sort of getting close to rounding things off, but there's uh, an elephant in the room with just about everything we've talked about that... Curriculum for Excellence was devised at a time of relative plenty, and now councils are very cash-strapped. Things are, you know, only going in one direction. Um, this curriculum was envisaged for a different world, which isn't really the case anymore. Is it harder to make all these things a reality well, when, the, the, when yeah, there's not as much money going about? Resources, resources are challenging, um, and uh, we, we've. You know, in the aftermath of the financial crash in 2008, I expected us to experience austerity for 
probably about three or four years. Well, we've had it for a decade and, and we'll probably get it for longer. Mm. So I, I, I can't deny that resources are a challenge. Having said that, teacher numbers are up. Um, expenditure on education by local authorities is up for three years in a row. Um, we are seeing significant expansion of early learning and childcare. And we're also seeing resources directed in a very focused way to, um, to closing the attainment gap, which I think is beginning to, to have an effect. It's also having an effect on the empowerment agenda because it is entrusting responsibility to the teaching profession to make significant decisions about the utilisation of resources. So um, I think, yes, resources are a challenge, but I also see you know, very bold and imaginative ways being brought forward by schools to address some of those challenges, which is delivering high-quality education mm. to young people. And I don't think, you know, we, 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 took, we took our time as a country to decide on the curricular reform that we undertook. And fundamentally, you know, when I, when I was over, I've talked a couple of times about the International Summit of the Teaching Profession, which this year took place in Finland, and I had the opportunity to hear more about the Finnish education system. And as I listened to what, what they were explaining about their curricular choices, I didn't feel as if we had anything to, to particularly learn from Finland about curricular choices. I thought we'd made the right curricular choices lined up against a, a system of that nature. The funny thing about Finland, and I've been there a few times myself, is that uh, it's been held up as this paragon for, for years, and every time I went over there, they would always protest, we don't understand, you know, people would tell me, teachers, we don't really understand why so many people come and see us, well, we don't feel that internationally we're doing anything particularly exceptional, and now, obviously, they've taken a bit of a tumble in yeah. Pisa, and uh, there's a school of thought that perhaps their success was largely down to be quite a homogenous country, and now they're dealing with a lot more migration these days. And perhaps that's why, um, and that presents its own challenges. But anyway, we're going down a bit of a rabbit hole there. <laughs> that well, that's, that's, we, that's going to be the topic of another podcast. I think that's a whole that's other podcast. Stage. Is there anything else you want to ask about, Emma? No, no, no. Shall we just move on? We, we've had this little tradition, although yeah. Maureen McKenna point blank refused to do it. Yeah, yeah this, is like, this is a massive crunch through the gears tonally, but uh, <laughs> after all this serious discussion we've had the last half hour or so, but it's a bit of fun. We asked, we've asked people so far uh, for each of our podcasts, and most of them have been giving us pretty entertaining answers, but for their favourite fictional teacher? Well, I think the, the way I'm going to answer your um, fictional teacher question is to basically say that I think the, the, the best fictional teacher I can come up with is Nelson Mandela, who gave us probably the greatest quote that I can think of in the field of education, which is education is the most powerful weapon to change the world. And, well, given all that's swirling around us just now as we meet on January the 7th, education is the most powerful yeah. weapon to change the world. <laughs> it's something that we should all dwell on. So there's my fictional teacher for Okay, okay we've stretched parameters a bit describing Nelson Mandela as fictional, but we'll let you have that. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much. Well, that's, uh, that's the home time bell, so that's <laughs> How expertly timed yeah. for the division bell to, re- to, to ring at this moment. So thanks very much for your time. Yeah, you've been very generous with your time, so appreciate that. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.